0: Life can change in an instant. A single moment can shatter your world, and you spend years picking up the pieces. Sometimes you can put it all back together, other times, crucial parts are missing. This is what so many survivors of mother and baby homes in Ireland have faced a moment when everything changed, forever. Maybe it was when they found out they were pregnant or when they realised they were adopted, or rediscovered a long-lost family. My name is Orla Ryan, and I'm a news correspondent with The Journal, one of Ireland's biggest news websites. I've written extensively about mother and baby homes, and interviewed many survivors who passed through the system. Tens of thousands of pregnant women and girls were sent to these institutions in Ireland throughout the 20th century. Their children were generally adopted or sent to industrial schools, often without their mother's consent. Mother and baby homes existed in many countries, but the proportion of unmarried mothers sent to institutions here is believed to have been the highest in the world. These people were silenced for decades, and when the state finally said it would investigate the system, their stories were dismissed. And disregarded. This six-part documentary series, Redacted Lies, will tell the real story of mother and baby homes, from what happened within, to how the state continues to deny survivors access to information, proper redress, and ownership of their true stories. Later in the series we will revisit Shum, where the discovery of an unofficial burial site of hundreds of babies ...uncovered the horrors of the institutions to many Irish people for the first time. There, the fight for excavation and a proper burial continues for the 800 children. We will also put the state's botched attempt at righting these wrongs under the microscope... ...and put questions to the minister responsible. But first, the women... ...in their own voices and their own words. Episode 1 Tracy 1735. This episode contains sensitive topics such as abuse and suicide. Terry Harrison was born and raised in Drimna in Dublin. Her childhood home was full of music.
1: My grandmother, I have to tell you, she was uh, a superb musician. She was a genius and she played about nine different instruments. But the piano was a heart. So it was always around me. My father was a great musician as well. And I loved music. Mostly Cat Stevens, uh, Bob Dylan, Neil Diamond. I wasn't crazy about the Beatles at all. Not in the early years. Grew to love them when they came into their own. But I didn't like those yeah, yeah, yeah kind of songs. Not for me.
0: Terry fell in love with the piano. As a teenager, she started to write songs and go to gigs. She wanted to pursue it professionally, but wasn't sure how realistic this was. She knew she had to get a job, and the opportunities in Ireland were few and far between. Terry emigrated from Dublin to London in 1973, when she was 18, drawn overseas by the promise of a new and better life, like so many young Irish people down through the years. Her future was her own, and she couldn't wait to see what lay ahead.
1: So I always wanted to go to London. I'd been to London a few times with my mother. I loved it, and I convinced both of them that they let me go to London I could better myself in retail and maybe get a good career over there and come back with great experience which would would be in my favour and my father was delighted because he was all about you know bettering yourself but my mother wasn't too keen on letting me go until she decided yes we're letting you go on the condition that you stay with my sister
0: It didn't take Terry long to find her feet. She had the security of staying with her aunt, and she soon managed to get a job in Marks & Spencer on Oxford Street. A new life in London was starting to come together, piece by piece. Until a simple accident one morning, Terry slipped and fell down the stairs. This was the moment everything changed. My aunt was worried sick about me. (laughs) She said, you have to go to a and get checked out. And I said,
1: yeah, okay. And the doctor I got was lovely. He came in to me and there was only a curtain around me and I knew my aunt was outside. And he just told me that my back was very badly bruised and I was to have nice relaxing baths, take it very easy and I would be able to go back to work a week later and I was okay. And uh, he walked out and as he walked out, he turned around and said, don't be worrying, the baby's fine. And he knew by my face. You didn't know you were having a baby and went, no.
0: This news wasn't completely unexpected. It was actually what prompted her to move away from Ireland in the first place. She had missed her period. When Terry's older sister got pregnant outside of marriage, their parents cut her off. She didn't want to stick around to find out if the same thing would happen to her and left Ireland as soon as she could. She had been living with some hope after a pregnancy test came back negative. She had to take one when she applied for the job with Marks and Spencer, who didn't hire pregnant women at the time. Terry then presumed her late period was a false alarm. But it wasn't. The doctor treated the news sensitively and offered to keep her in overnight for a termination. But Terry knew she wanted to keep her baby. She was still processing the news when a woman stepped into her hospital cubicle to speak with her.
1: And I thought she was an administrator. You know, the way they go around asking your PSI number, back then your social work number, all sorts of things, you know. And she's chatting away to me and um, started asking me loads of questions. Where was the baby's father? Did I, have, did I have a husband? And I looked at her and I went, yes. I just winged every answer to her. And at the top of my head, I just said, oh, he's away working. Where? And all I had, not a clue, ge- geography of England, but for some reasons, I just said Leeds, because I remember my father was big into that football. I said, hey, up north, and Leeds. And I went, oh, God, what if Leeds is not up north? I hadn't a clue. Well, I'm sure if I had been wrong, she'd have, she, she was very, very cold and clinical with me. So you
0: were just sitting in bed... This lady walked
1: up to you. Mm. Did she identify herself? No. I, I never remember saying a name or anything. I know now who she was. I don't know who she was personally, but I do know she works for the Catholic Crusade and Rescue Society. And her job was to, you know, look, watch out for people like me, girls like me. I found out only January, that's right. Well, about four weeks after that, I found out what a PFI was. And I'm a PFI, and I never knew that.
0: What's PFI?
1: Pregnant from Ireland.
0: From the 1920s onwards, there were reports of a high number of pregnant women moving from Ireland to Britain, or Irish women getting pregnant while already living there. In some cases, these women were turning to Catholic charities for support. Clergy in the UK told Irish authorities they needed to address the situation and the solution was to simply bring them back to Ireland. In 1931, the Irish government set up a scheme where they pledged to cover half the cost of repatriation. The number of so-called PFIs brought back from the UK to Ireland increased over the following three decades. This figure peaked in 1967, when 213 women were sent back to Ireland. Members of the clergy wanted these women returned to Ireland for a number of reasons including to ensure they would not have an abortion or to stop their children from being adopted by a Protestant family. Terry didn't fall into either category. She planned to keep her child and raise them herself. She knew her parents wouldn't agree to this, so she had no intention of telling them. But they soon found out. Terry asked her aunt to keep the pregnancy a secret. But she didn't. Terry knew she had to cut ties and move out on her own. She was busy making plans to move in with her friend David. The pair were going to pretend they were a couple. David was gay, but hadn't come out to his family yet.
1: He had a two-bedroom apartment and he said, you move in with me, You pay the rent for the other bedroom. But as far as my mother and father's concerned, you're my girlfriend. And that was the deal we made.
0: <laughs> we had it all planned. The arrangement suited them both and Terry started staying at his apartment. Her aunt got in touch and asked her to come back to her house to talk and sort things out. Terry was still very fond of her aunt and agreed. She also had to pick up her belongings. When she arrived, three people were waiting for her. There was two
1: nuns and a priest in the kitchen.
0: A minute the door opened,
1: I could smell the atmosphere. I knew there was something wrong, something wasn't right, and there was no children. Where was the children? The screams and the roars of your man at me, you know? And I screamed back and I kept to no, 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 I'm not leaving. I just want my stuff and I'm, I'm going."
0: The priest told Terry she had to return to Ireland as she couldn't be a burden on the British state. Terry said she had a job and would pay her own way. She didn't want charity from anyone. She didn't know if it was the woman who asked her questions in the hospital or her own family who reported her to the clergy. At this point, it didn't matter. Terry begged her aunt to not let them take her. But it was no use. The priest dragged her, kicking and screaming, from her aunt's house into a waiting car. The two nuns watched, silently. I was screaming, hysterical, you know begging,
1: begging, please, please stop him. Stop him. Somebody stop him. When he eventually got me in the back of that car, from my aunt's to heathrow, I started to become invisible. I don't think they even opened their mouths to me the whole way in the car. They all talked about their breakfast, something else, about what they were doing. And then he drove, like my my eldest niece, not so long ago, she couldn't get her head around. She's like, now tell you, I know you. You'd have bit him, bashed him, screams you, and Heathrow Police would have been all over him. And I kept looking at her and going, no, they wouldn't. All they would have seen was a powerful, holy man trying to look after a girl who was off the rails, or they could have said, and I could have ended up in an institution mentally disturbed. They were a power above Heathrow Police. Heathrow Police wouldn't have gone near them.
0: When pushing her up the steps to the plane, Terry says the priest hit her with such force that her glasses fell and broke. The air stewards looked on, but did nothing. She felt this was because it was a situation they had seen before. A young woman being dragged onto a plane by a member of the clergy. I always remember these cold
1: steel bars, but I had such a grip on them. You know, he had an awful job trying to get me out, my hands off them. And he kept hitting me here in the middle of me back, thumping me.
0: Terry was frightened. She assumed she was being brought home to Dublin until an air steward told her the plane was flying to Cork. Two nuns picked her up from the airport. She was being brought to Bespera mother and baby home. But
1: what happened was they pulled up at the steps and never forget Bespera's door. And I just looked. And I picked up the case, and she walked up, and the door opened, and a tiny little nun opened the door, and ushered me in, and I kept saying, where am I? And she said um, something like, shush. And the, little, the tiny little nun, she said to, to stay there, um, you'll go in and see the mother. Mother
0: superior.
1: Mother superior shortly, or processing, or something like that, I can't remember, but she just left me standing there. And I was totally invisible at that stage.
2: Were you terrified?
1: How yeah, you? petrified. Something came up at me in that hallway. The ceilings, the height and the height of the stairs. The height of the, and the weight of the door, the way it clicked. But there was a smell. A horrible, horrible smell. And I think to this day I was smelling fear. Fear in an atmosphere. Trapped fear. And then I heard the voice and I, was, I had to go in and stand there in front of her. And that's when she kept going on at me, what was my name? And I kept saying, Terry, my name is Terry. That's not a name. What's your proper name, your real name? I Everybody calls me. I don't care what anybody calls you. She had glasses down here looking over them at me. You know, she kept scratching her head, her habit. Oh, like I was, you know, really annoying her. So she had opened, the little nun had brought the brown case into her and lo and behold there was a big brown envelope in the brown case that they must have put in with all my paperwork and she kept saying over and over again, I want your name. And then it was like, uh, you know, she's going through these papers and oh, she said, I found it. Your name is Theresa. I went, nobody calls me that. That's your name. Now she said. I'll think, I'll think. Hmm. said, right, your name is Tracy. That's the nearest Teresa. I said, I don't go by Tracy. She just put a hand up like that and said to me, you're Tracy 1735. And that was the end of Terry. Totland. Never got her back, all right.
0: few people in the outside world knew where Terry really was. Only her mother and aunt knew the truth. Her father and siblings thought she was still in London. Many other women faced the same situation. The excuse often given to friends, relatives and neighbours was that they were moving to Dublin or England for work, or younger girls were going to learn Irish in the Gaeltacht. The months dragged on. Terry had a difficult pregnancy. She bled frequently and was worried she was losing her baby. She endured this alone until finally telling a nun that she needed help. But she was not offered medical treatment. Something wasn't right
1: and I just begged her to get me, let me see a doctor. And that's when she asked me who did I th- think I was. I it was somebody special. So she told me to go to the grotto and pray. Pray that God forgive me. And no matter what happened, you know, God would answer my prayers if I was real. And that's what I did. Went out to this lump of cement, the shape of a woman holding a child, and prayed to her. Watched her holding her baby. And I, I always remember saying to her, you, You're a mother help me. You're a mother. You know, I mean, I really bought into that Catholic shit.
0: Throughout her stay in Bespera, Terry was completely cut off from anyone she knew and what little contact she had was closely monitored. The women and girls in the home were allowed visitors, but even then they were watched by the nuns. Terry hadn't spoken to her boyfriend in months. He thought she was still in England. When she was in London, she sent him a letter telling him she was pregnant. He was supportive and wanted to raise their child. With the help of a caretaker in Bessborough, she managed to get a letter to him. He had no idea she was back in Ireland. But soon after he received the letter, he came to see her. He got a train from Dublin to Cork and found his way to Bessborough,
1: And I made my way up to the and there he was, sitting there. I oh, was absolutely on cloud nine and I said, right, let's go. I said, go where? I said, anywhere. I'm leaving. I'll go up to the dorm and get wherever I can. And when I come back down, um, you tell him we're going for a walk on the grounds.
0: Terry's plan was to escape. They moved slowly and carefully around the grounds of Bessborough until they were close to the main gate. Just kept going from bench to bench and you could see the curtains moving and all. They'd be watching you. Once they saw their chance, they made a break for it and ran as far as they could out the gate before stopping to catch their breath.
1: I said to him, right, which way? What do you mean, which way? Which way do we go? I haven't a clue. What do you mean you haven't a clue? You came here, how did you get here? He said... I got the train, and he said, and I told him to lift out here. I haven't a clue where we are, Terry. And I went, oh, great.
0: (laughs) Oh, I'll never forget it. The heat, the sun. They managed to get into the city centre and onto a train. Once back in Dublin, they stayed with his brother overnight. When the nuns realised Terry had escaped, they contacted her mother and made plans to bring her back to the institution. Terry wanted to stay with her older sister, who lived in the Dublin mountains, where she thought she would be safe. She arranged for a relative, someone she trusted, to give her a lift.
1: The nun had um, made contact with my mother and told my mother what I had done. And my mother and sister Paul were uh, communicating. Mm -hmm. And then I arranged to go to my sisters. I was taken then, not to my sisters. I was driven. Straight paths. And that was it.
0: I was put in a van too so nobody would see me. Once again, Terry vanished. Her boyfriend never found her.
1: I talked to a few of the men that were searching for their vanished girlfriends. Same thing, it's like hitting a brick wall. There were so many places in Ireland that they didn't even know of. And then some of them wouldn't even know that her girlfriend's was pregnant. But just that she just, she's gone. Where's she gone? No phone call, no nothing. You wouldn't just vanish. We vanished off the earth. Nobody missed us.
0: Terry found herself in another institution, this time St. Patrick's on the Navin Road in Dublin, the biggest mother and baby home in Ireland. She was not able to escape again and went into labour while in St. Pat's. The birth was even more difficult than her pregnancy. It dragged on for days, during which time Terry lost a significant amount of blood.
1: That evening, that night, I woke up. My bed was wet in the dark. It was blood. Blood was everywhere. And I was screaming the place down. And one of the other ones came in to me and said, You know, you wake Sister Elizabeth, you know, I have you know, all concerns about waking the nun. And I begged her, I said, Get Sister Elizabeth, please. You know, I'm dying. She put on the light and, and, oh, my God, all hell broke loose. Because um, I had soiled everywhere. So they made me get out of that bed. And they brought me into another room off the side of the hallway, near the delivery room. She came in and she told me to stay quiet. And she told me I wouldn't be in such a big hurry to be a filthy, dirty girl again. And I started screaming then for my mother, crying, mammy, 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 help me, help me, help me. So all I heard was, your mother doesn't want to know what's on your chart. Nobody's to know. So shut sure up. That was kind of the attitude, like you're wasting your time. You're calling the wrong person. I didn't I didn't think I was going to die Earlier, that went on for three days and three nights. It was on the Friday and then the Monday morning half six he was born. And then the thing I was on, it started vibrating. My body went into shock and one of the nuns got tinfoil. They wrapped me in tinfoil and I was lying here and he was under the tinfoil. I, I always remember before I, I, I went over, I kept saying, how is he going to breed? <laughs> that was the last thing I remember and I don't remember James's. Apparently I got transfusions, everything there, it's all on my charts.
0: Terry gave birth to her son, Niall, in October 1973. After she was briefly transferred to hospital, she was brought back to St Pat's and allowed to care for Niall, feeding and washing him. She cherished this time with her son and still fully intended to keep him. But I was happy.
1: I spent every waking moment with that baby and never put him down.
0: Terry had started to make plans for their life outside the institution, totally unaware of what was about to happen. One morning, she went to the feeding room as normal, but Niall's cot was empty. The nuns had taken him and their future away. For the 10 o'clock feed, I would have been going up for that. He was
1: gone. I lost the block, went ballistic. Went down the hallway where the little church was. Remembered your woman in stone in there as well. It was in the side. And all I wanted to do was smash it to bits. I think that was the last of me in the church.
0: Terry tried to get her son back, but the nuns turned her away. She never signed adoption papers for Nile, and believes her signature was forged. In the years that followed, Terry got married and had other children She built a successful career She travelled She became a grandmother But every single day she thought about Niall How is he? Where is he? What does he look like now? Her other children always knew they had an older brother A photo of Niall as a baby still has pride of place on top of Terry's piano in her living room over the years, she regularly tried to find out information about her son. She contacted social workers, nuns, the adoption agency, the local health board, but was getting nowhere. After she exhausted official channels, she hired a private investigator.
1: I remember the morning he came back and I the door, but I could see him. I knew it was him and my heart's in he my mouth, and I kept saying, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god!" And anybody's face when he sat down, and he had a brown envelope, and he pushed it towards me. He said, "There's the information you need to know about your son."
0: Mothers like Terry struggle to find their children, and the same is often true for the children themselves, who may be looking for their parents or other relatives. Twenty years before Terry's time in Bessborough, Mary Harney was a baby in the same institution. She was one of almost 9,000 children to pass through Bessborough during the 77 years it operated. Mary didn't know her mother when she was growing up and her attempts to find out information were shut down by the nuns. She was not adopted and ended up in the Good Shepherd Industrial School in Cork. Mary frequently tried to run away but was always caught and beaten on her return. It was not uncommon for Gardie to bring back girls who escaped. When I met Mary in Galway, she described what happened after one failed attempt when she was 15.
2: Well, I was caught by the hair and swung round the room. My head was banged on the mantelpiece. This was the infirmary. I was taken into the infirmary because it was never used, so there was nobody around. had my head repeatedly banged on the mantelpiece. We used to call her Iron Fist, this particular nun. And uh, she beat me across the head and the face so badly that her hand imprint was still on my face when I ran away. And the reason I ran away was, well, the beating was one. But by this time, I wouldn't cry. There was a bunch of us that had learned that this pissed the nuns off really bad when you didn't cry.
0: Even though she was being beaten for trying to escape, Mary used it as an opportunity to try again. She was able to trip the nun up and she made a run for it. She went to a nearby missionary house to a young local priest she had befriended, Father Vincent. He had been kind to her in the past and was one of the few people in authority she trusted. He took me
2: back because he said otherwise the guards would. And we knew that. The guards brought girls back all the time. And she did not go straight to where The children's section was he uh, demanded to see the Reverend Mother and, of course, he was a priest and everyone kowtowed to him and he took me in front of the Reverend Mother and he showed her my patch of bald and my face, which still was red with marks, and told her that if it happened again or if he saw any of it on any child, he would do something about it.
0: Mary's time in Sunday's well was incredibly difficult. She says it was like being in a prison. She daydreamed that one day her mother might come to rescue her. Mary eventually asked a nun about her mother, where she was, if she might come to get her.
2: I was about 11 or 12 going on, just before our confirmation, and one of the nuns said she was dead, and I was awfully confused because the foster mother was still coming to see me, but, but, but by that time they were calling her foster mother. Now, um, in terms of my mother, from then on, every night at prayers, I prayed for the repose my mother saw.
0: A few years later, Mary asked the nuns for more information about what happened to her mother. They again refused to provide any details.
2: So I went back and I told Father Vincent what had happened and he said, let me see what I can do. And he said... Um, I've found out a little more, your mammy's in England. I don't know where, they won't tell me, but she's not dead. She's alive and she's in England.
0: Mary was determined to find her mother. She was finally allowed to leave Sunday as well at 16. She saw no future for herself in Ireland and used what little money she had to get the ferry over to England and then a train to London. She had lived in an institution all her life and was now in a huge city in another country with no money, no friends, and no family. By complete chance, among the millions of people in London, she bumped into one of the few she knew.
2: By the strangest of coincidence, outside the station of Paddington, I bumped into three people. One of whom was a girl who had been in the Good Shepherds with me and her two brothers, Now I had met her brothers when they had been in an industrial school in Cork and they were allowed to come and see their brothers, the Christian brothers used to bring boys to see their sisters and I remembered these two boys who were now older than me, probably 17 or 18, and the girl was also older than me, Eileen was her name, and we had been friends,
0: Eileen and her two brothers took Mary under their wing. They were all homeless, stealing what little food they could to survive and sleeping on park benches. It wasn't long before Mary became very ill, suffering from pneumonia and malnutrition. Eileen brought her to a halfway house that was run by a Catholic association. The nuns nursed Mary back to health and found her a job as a cleaner. The job didn't pay well, but provided food and shelter, and it allowed her to begin to search for her mother. Her friend suggested that she write to the Mother Superior in Vespera. In the past, Mary went to the institution in person in a bid to get information, but was turned away. On her friend's suggestion, in this letter, she threatened to go to the news of the world with her story.
2: Anyway, a couple of weeks later, the letter comes from Ireland, still have it, and it tells me my mother's name, the fact that she's married. She has two children and a husband and and an address.
0: Mary was now 17 and for the first time in her life knew who and where her mother was. She was ecstatic.
2: Well, I was running around the place showing the letter to all the nuns and all the girls going, I've got a mother, I've got a mother, I've got sisters. You know, so exciting. Um, And then of course, like it was, uh, right, I'm going up to Cardiff. I had the address. I'm going up there. I'm going to see him when I get enough money for the fair.
0: Mary and Terry were both sent to institutions without any say in the matter. One as a child, one as a young woman. Others experienced institutions more than once at various stages in their life. Like Maria Arbuckle, who spent time in homes in both the Republic and Northern Ireland.
3: In my case... I was in a home run by nuns. I was sent to another home run by nuns. Social workers who worked for the state were involved both sides of the border. You cannot say that. Even if I'm the only single case like that, it has happened. But I know I'm not the only case of it.
0: Maria was born in Derry in 1962. She grew up in care and was separated from her siblings at a young age. She was eventually moved from a foster home to St. Joseph's Industrial School in Middleton, County Armagh. She left the school at the age of 17, but it wasn't long before she was back in the hands of the nuns. Maria started seeing a man and became pregnant. They split up and the nuns arranged for Maria to stay with a family in Bally Bay in County Monaghan. Two months before she was due she was moved once again.
3: I didn't even know where I was going to, but I ended up here in Dublin, in St Patrick's mother and baby's home in Dublin. And I had Paul on the 10th of March, 1981. I don't remember giving birth to him. It's completely gone. I remember when Paul was born, I was taken to a hospital. And... Then when we came back, we had to go up at feeding times, washing times, but we weren't allowed to like, cuddle them or anything. You were told, don't, they're not yours anymore. Don't do it. There was a girl who had sneaked a camera and, and to this day, I can't even remember how I got the photograph, but she photographed me holding Paul when he was two days old. And I still have that photograph to this day. Everything goes blank again. I don't even know. I remember it was a Saturday morning, two social workers, one wasn't a social worker and one was a social worker, came from the children's home, the training school, and took the baby away, but left me there. I don't remember how I even got from there to the north again.
0: Maria made her way back to Monaghan. A couple of months later, she received the adoption papers.
3: I went into the Arma Social Services, signed the paperwork, came out of there, met a random guy. He took me to a house, ended up having sex with me, and I went into the bathroom and took a load of tablets. And the next thing I remember is I woke up in Monaghan Mental Hospital.
0: Maria was released around a week later. It wasn't easy to pick up the pieces after spending so much of her life in institutions. But she did. She went on to marry and have other children. Maria experienced more heartbreak when her eldest daughter, Kerry, died as a baby. The grief was similar to when she lost Paul.
3: The only way I can describe it is, I had a daughter, my first daughter, when she was born, she died at five months. Caught death, he says it was. But I could go, I knew where she was. I knew where her grave was. I could go, I could sit and talk there at the grave, where Paul, I never knew. But they're both on the same par, really, because every year I'd be thinking, oh, I wonder, Carrie would have been doing now. I wonder what Paul's doing. So his birthday is the 10th of March and her anniversary is the 16th of March. So they're really close together.
0: Paul was always on her mind. She never gave up trying to find out more about him and her own time in foster care. She spoke to social workers. She searched online. She contacted support groups for adopted people and their relatives. The search was fruitless until a breakthrough in 2021, when an inquiry into mother and baby homes in Northern Ireland uncovered Paul's details. Social services acted as a go-between for Maria and Paul for their initial contact.
3: I'd have to write a letter to them, they would send it to him, then he would have to write back to them, and they would send it to me, and that this, this would take months to do. So I says to them, oh, can I put on a of card? Because it's his 40th birthday next week? No. Can I send photographs of his siblings? No. Just keep it light and informal. So that's what I'd done. I went straight away, got paper and pen, wrote a letter, sent it to them.
0: At the same time, social workers had also been in touch with Paul and told him that Maria was writing him a letter. Impatient, he Googled her. Just hours after she wrote the letter, and before Paul had actually received it, a notification popped up on Maria's phone. That night,
3: I get a friend request on Facebook, and it's a woman from Derry. So the first thing was, in my head, I thought, is this his partner? And then because she was from Derry, my hometown, I'm like, no, it's probably something to do with the mother and babies homes. Somebody's looking... For advice of me so i accepted the friend request and i woke up the next morning to a message saying i hear you've been looking for me and paul raymond arbuckle your son
0: maria mary and terry are just three of tens of thousands of people who pass through institutions on the island of Ireland. The impact of the mother and baby home system still casts a long shadow over countless families. But how did it come to exist in the first place? How did wider society allow it to continue for so long? And why, in trying to make amends, has the state continued to let these people down? The grief,
2: the grief, I still think today, the grief. They say, you know, as time goes on, it gets easier. It doesn't get easy, what you do, you put it to the back of your mind every day. Some days are good, some days are bad, some days are horrendous, but you still have to get up in the morning and carry on with your everyday life. Why was I handed over, given, taken from my mother and given to two strangers? It's not my business. There's no documentation anywhere. So was I trafficked? One could look at it that way. They lied, lied, lied.
1: It was, you know, they manipulated our lives. They destroyed our lives. I hope they got paid enough for what they did because they too knew
3: what they were doing was wrong. They had to. I think somewhere in your life, It comes to a stage that you do want to know who you are.
4: I'm Sinead O'Carroll, editor of The Journal. Before we finish this episode, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about why and how we are telling this important story in this way. When the survivors of mother and baby homes felt dismissed by the state's formal investigation, Orla, your presenter, Really motivated to produce even more reliable, meaningful, independent journalism about what happened to the women and children in these institutions. Our aim has been to provide them with a space to tell you about their lives in their own words and using their own voices. So, over the past year, we've been making Redacted Lives, which does just that. It has been a really big commitment from our newsroom but one that we hope that you are finding worthwhile and that you believe should be heard by as many people as possible. So now we're asking listeners like you to support us in doing that. A donation will go a long way in helping us to keep telling stories like the ones you've heard here today. Please go to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute and choose between a monthly or one-off contribution.
0: Next time. Unredacted Redacted Lives.
3: You know, you can come back to that. Or if you find that so upsetting, no, uh, yeah. It's a very vivid memory. It is. Know,
2: think, it's, yeah. As you're talking about it, it's, it's happening all over. Exactly, yeah. This was the ideal, that we were a pure Catholic nation. And anyone who went outside of that ideal or challenged it in any way, who challenged the law and doctrine and teachings of the church, we're hidden away, we're punished, we're incarcerated. And it's precisely in a way, I think, why people get tired of all of this, because there is a sense of, of, of a consciousness of a kind of guilt in people who look back at it, many of whom knew. I mean, every town had a tall building with high walls around it, or many did outside. People knew what was going on.
0: Thanks for listening to episode one of Redacted Lives. During the making of this podcast, we asked each of the religious orders which ran or staffed the institutions mentioned if they would like to participate in the series. They all declined. The Sisters of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary, the Daughters of Charity, and the Congregation of Our Lady of Charity of the Good Shepherd issued statements to say they had cooperated with the Commission of Investigation. They also said they did their best to support women at a time when they had been rejected by their families and wider society. If you pass through a mother and baby home or another institution and want to share your story, you can contact us in confidence by emailing redactedlives at journal.ie. Redacted Lives was created and presented by me, Orla Ryan, and produced by Nikki Ryan. Sinead O'Carroll was the executive producer Taz Kelleher was our sound engineer, and design was by Lorcan O'Reilly. With thanks to Dara Brophy, Laura Byrne, Christine Bohan, Susan Daly, Adrian Acosta, and Jonathan McRae. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in these episodes, you can contact the Samaritans by calling 116-123. Subscribe to Redacted Lives, and you can help us keep telling important stories like this by sharing this series with a friend or leaving us a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow all the latest updates on the journal.ie, or via our Twitter page, at Redacted Lives. The next episode in the series will be available next Thursday.